Amen. Thank you so much. What a joy it is to get to sing together. And uh, church, we miss your faces, we miss your voices, but we look forward to the time where we can get back in the same room and be worshiping together. Uh, well, it is great to be able to open the word together with you. And so if you have a Bible, I'm gonna ask you to open it to Matthew chapter 13. We've been walking through the book of Matthew and we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 13. And what Jesus is doing is he is a master teacher, a master storyteller. And we're in this section where he tells eight stories in a row. And so we see that, uh, that Jesus is telling these stories, we call them parables. And the word parable literally means to compare. It means this is like that. And so he's teaching us these things. And uh, one of the surprising things about the parables is that they are surprisingly not religious in their characters and in their context. You ever notice that when Jesus is telling stories, he's telling stories about weddings and coins and sheep and a father and a son and baking bread and being a farmer, all of these kinds of things. And the mastery that Jesus has in teaching is that he's telling these stories in order to sort of get up underneath our, uh, our ready defenses that would show us what we believe about God, what we believe about life. And so he's sort of getting up underneath those, those previous uh, prejudices about who God is and how life ought to be done by telling these very simple, short stories called parables. And so he's telling eight in a row here in Matthew, and there's something that he is teaching. He's saying, this is like that. He's saying, these stories are like the kingdom of God. Particularly, three in a row in Matthew 13, uh, we, we see that Jesus is getting up underneath into our hearts to show us that, that we need to be a people who can learn to confidently wait on God. Wait specifically when things are dark, when things are difficult, right? When God seems far away, when God seems like he's quiet, we need to be reminded that to believe that, man, even though the world is crazy right now, it won't always be so, that God will judge evil, that God will reward righteousness. And so he's telling us these stories to remind us of these things. And church, I know so many of us could use that reminder right now, right? In the middle of where we find ourselves, we find ourselves uh, worried and anxious and fearful, right? there, We are in this pandemic, right? We're wrestling with racial injustice and fear, in loneliness, in depression, all those things that are spurred on in us. And we begin maybe asking the questions, God, why don't you do something? Are, are, are you quiet? Are you silent? Do you see what's happening? And we get to parables like this and Jesus doesn't give us a lecture. He doesn't even give us a sermon. He gives us a story. And here's the story he gives us, Matthew 13. He says, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came to him and said, master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? And he said, no lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. 
that both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. So very simple story about a farmer who owns a field who's sowing good seeds. And like every good story, not only is there a hero, but there is an antagonist, right? There's always the bad guy. There's Thanos or Voldemort, uh, I said it. Uh, and uh, all of those bad guys, Lex Luthor or Sauron, you take your pick of which bad guy. And there's a bad guy in this story too. The bad guy in this story sneaks into the field under the dark of night and he takes bad seeds and he sows them among the good seeds. The, 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 they're gonna create weeds. There's a, a sort of an agricultural sabotage going on here. And the word for weeds right here in the Greek is the word zizania. It is a specific kind of weed that would look exactly the same as wheat. It would grow up together and you would not be able to tell the difference until the moment of maturity, until the, the wheat actually turned into grain and you were able to, to process and harvest it. And so it looked exactly the same. There was actually so much of this sort of agricultural sabotage going on that there was Roman laws on the books that it was illegal to put zizania in your neighbor's uh, uh, field, that people were doing this in order to sabotage. But here's what would happen is that as those things grew up together, you couldn't tell the difference. But those weeds were soaking nutrients from the wheat. They're literally taking life from them so that they wouldn't grow to maturity. So we see a farmer sows, we see the enemy goes and sabotages, and then we see the workers and they ask three questions. Verse 27, they say, didn't you sow good seed? Essentially asking, aren't you a good farmer who sows good seeds? The second question they ask is, how can there be so much bad in the field? Right? How can there be wheat and weeds? And then verse 28, hey, do you just want us to take care of us? What do you want us to do? So the farmer simply says, no, don't get rid of the weeds, but the wheat and the weeds grow together so that you don't destroy the good while uprooting the bad. I'll deal with them at the time of harvest. So that's the story. Let's pray and you're dismissed. No, right? What in the world is happening? That's the story that he tells us. He says, the kingdom of God is like this. It's like this farmer who, who has this enemy and this enemy is sowing a counterfeit seed and, and the, the, the folks are coming and they're asking questions and the good news is, is that I'm not the only one confused by this because the disciples come to Jesus later that day and they go, Jesus, would you, would you tell us about what in the world are you talking about? Only a couple of times do we have the privilege of getting to see into and have Jesus explain the story to us. And this is one of those times, verse 36. It says, then he left the crowds and he went into the house and his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. And he answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The son of man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. So essentially, Jesus says, okay, let me be plain. Let me just explain this story. I'm the sower and I've sowed good seeds. He calls those good seeds sons 
of the kingdom. But he also says, let me be very clear that there is a very real enemy. And that enemy is sowing sabotaging seeds. Those sabotaging seeds are meant to steal life from the sons of the kingdom. And one of the interesting sort of takeaways as I'm reading through this is, is you'll notice that, that a main part of the story is the, the workers and their questions. But nowhere in the explanation do we see them. Jesus explains everything else, right? He explains the sower, the field, the good seed, the bad seed, the enemy, the harvest, but he sort of leaves out the workers. And I think what he's doing is sort of highlighting their questions. He's bringing them to the forefront because I think the questions that they are asking are the questions that we are asking. Look at their questions again. They say, how can there be so much bad in the world? They say, aren't you good? The questions that we're asking, God, are you good in these moments? And then the third question I think many of us are asking is, what do we do? What should we do? So let's look at each one of those questions and see what this parable, see what Jesus is teaching us about those questions that the workers are asking. The first question that they ask is, how can there be so much bad? Now, I don't have the time or energy to explain all the bad that's in the world. And I don't think you probably need me to spend any time and energy explaining all that's going on in the world. We're, we're feeling the weight of that right now. We can just open our eyes or open our newsfeed and we sense that. And what's happening here is Jesus speaks very plainly. Verse 38, he said, the field is the world and the weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. Essentially, he's saying that the work of this very real enemy is to spoil, to sabotage, to plant seeds that look good, but bear the fruit of death. If you go all the way back to Genesis chapter three, remember the first temptation. Now, Satan takes what? Takes a fruit that is good to the eyes and he hands that to Eve and Adam and Eve take of that fruit. And the promise of a wonderful a meal turns into the reality of death. That which looked amazing led to death, All right? He didn't come with like a spoiled, rotten apple and say, hey, take this. No, he takes the, the beauty of that apple because he is the deceiver. That's what the Bible calls our enemy. And, and like a good deceiver, he's crafty enough to know that he can't just come out with a full-on blatant lie. Like he's got to couch it in enough truth that we'll actually pay attention to it. So he gives us sort of half truths, sort of truths, just enough flavor of truth that we're not going to question it, but we're really busy and we're really distracted. So the half truth is just enough for us to take and eat. But in reality, that half truth is a full lie because the message of the world, you notice it isn't a it isn't a blatant in your face. Nobody's out there saying, you know what you should do? You should do evil. You should be evil and do evil. Nobody's saying that. It's too obvious. It's too blatant. Instead, the, the message is more nuanced. It's something along the lines of, of, you should do good, true. But if you don't do good the way that I define good or say you ought to do good, then you are evil. And all of a sudden we find ourselves getting into a place of asking questions of how do we understand that? See, nobody is saying racism is good. Nobody, except maybe very few extremists, they're saying things like racism is good or murder is good or looting and, and burning down stores is good. People aren't saying that the loss of jobs or getting sick is good, but yet there's all this sort of hatred and anger. Where's that coming from? 
See, what's happening in, in, in our hearts is that Satan is the accuser. And he loves just allowing the momentum of our sin to carry us further into sin, further away from God. He's the accuser. So we find him saying things like this, how could you? You are so terrible. You are irredeemable. Who could possibly love you? How could you possibly think that or say that? How could God love you? And we start believing those accusing voices that maybe we are irredeemable. But the good news is this, is that we don't define goodness based on our Twitter feed or our news feed. We base the word goodness and what is good based on the word of God, the goodness of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And because of that, what happens when we try to find a peace and assurance in all of those things, one of two things can happen quickly. Either we find ourselves sort of really confused and discouraged, or we become really sort of tribalized outside the church, which makes us very divisive inside the church. Because we have this real enemy who is sowing the seeds and the works of the enemy are to sow seeds. You know, the main goal of the enemy is not racism. It's not sickness, it's not disease. That the main goal of the enemy is to use racism and sickness and, to, and disease to divide and to destroy God's people. That's his aim. That's his aim. And so we see, that's what Jesus tells us in John chapter 10. Here, here's the playbook of the enemy. He comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. He's saying there's an enemy who is actively working to sow seeds of sabotage, even among God's people, to tear apart so that the witness of the church becomes mute. So while Satan is active, here's the good news, he's not almighty. So that's good news for us today. Because the second question that the workers ask is, is, is God good? Notice in verse 27, here's what they said. It says, and the servants of the master of the house came to him and said, master, did you not sow good seed in your field? Now, right, they're asking a question about the seed that he sowed, but really they're not, it's a less, less a question about the quality of the seed and more a, a question about the character of the farmer. Because if he was a good farmer, he wouldn't purposefully sow bad seed. So they're really asking, are you good? Can you be trusted? Did you put these weeds here? What's going on? Why is it that there's so many weeds here? And, and the thinking goes something like this. If there's evil in the world, right? If God allows evil to continue because he can't stop it, then he might be good, but he's not almighty, all powerful. But on the flip side of that, here's the other side of that argument. If God allows evil to continue, but he could stop it, then maybe he's all powerful, but certainly he's not all good. And so how then can God's goodness and his power and the reality of evil all exist at the same time? Well, I think that's part of what this parable is teaching us. And Jesus teaches us at least three things about God. He teaches us that God is patient, that there's a day that God will hold evil accountable, and that God will reward the righteous. So let's look at those real quickly. How do we know that God is good? We know that God is good because this parable is pointing us to the fact that God is patient. He's not passive, which is good news for us. Really one of the main themes of this entire parable is that of patience, not just for the workers, although they have to be patient, but it's the patience of God himself. Now we know that, that God doesn't sort of enjoy looking out on the field and seeing wheat and weeds. 
but he's also not gonna rush the harvest too soon. So he says in verse 30, let them grow together. Let them grow together until the harvest. Don't let them grow together forever, but let them grow together for now because there's a coming harvest. And right now, y'all, things are confused. We gotta admit that. Right, right now we look around and we see the pain and the suffering out there. We see the pain and the suffering in here and we get confused, we get frustrated, but we recognize that God is not passive, he is patient. There will be a day eventually that God will judge between the wheat and the weeds because God cares more about the preservation of his people than immediately eradicating evil. He cares about the preservation of his people. He said, let them grow up together so that we don't pull out the, the roots of the good in an attempt to pull out the roots of the bad. He is patient, but... Number two, there is a day where he holds evil accountable. That God's goodness means that he will eradicate all that is not good. Here's what Jesus said in the parable, verse 40. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The son of man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. Now, let's be honest. Sometimes judgment scenes in the Bible can get us feeling a little uh, uneasy, right? You feel that? You read about uh, evildoers being thrown into a burning, burning, fiery furnace, and it can create some sort of uh, trauma of maybe some excesses that preachers have used to try to scare people into heaven. We say this, that the Bible doesn't teach that God is some sort of raging monster that haphazardly is sentencing uh, image bearers to eternal damnation. But at the same time, we have to be careful to have the previous, uh, the, the, the same unbiblical view that God is neither, uh, not only ha not haphazard, but he's not indulgent. He's not a sort of sweet grandpa in the sky who just lets you do whatever you want, have however much candy you want, whatever makes you happy. That, that He's neither haphazard in his judgments, nor is he indulgent in his allowances. Because of that, because just because God endures evil doesn't mean that he will neglect evil. He might be enduring it, but he's not neglecting it. And so, man, you might be feeling overwhelmed. You might be feeling perplexed. You might be feeling, how in the world is this happening? I want you to never forget that God's goodness will drive him to a just uh, dealing with evil. Because he is good, he will deal with evil justly. I mean, you think about it like this, like even personally, how you deal with being wronged in your life, right? You've ever had somebody speak bad against you. You've ever had somebody steal something from you, how violating that feels. You feel like, man, I want that person to sort of pay the, the, the penalty, the just penalty for invading and wounding and, and speaking to me in that way. We, we have that sort of justice in us. Why? Well, because we're created in God's image who is ultimately righteous and just. And he will bring about that right judgment. That's what Jesus is telling us in this parable. That God will bring about a judgment to the world. And so God, uh, we, our church, we, we hope and we pray and we believe that, that God who created us will one day condemn the evil that we feel so mightily. Because church, he feels it too. He, he not only feels it sort of out there, he felt it on the cross more than you and I could ever imagine. He felt all of it. 
and he takes it. And so why is that? The reason why, according to this parable, that there is a preservation of the wheat, there's a preservation of God's people, that for whatever reason, the suffering and evil in the world is bringing about that good, right preservation so that we might be brought to a full maturity so that the fruit of our lives, the fruit of our church might be full. And in God's uh, timing and in God's wisdom, he will bring about that judgment, but not yet. Number three, how do we know that God is good? I love verse 43. We know he's good because he will reward the righteous. Look at verse 43 again. It says, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. And so church, I, I don't know about you. I, I don't know if I live in this reality often. I think I often forget that there's a coming kingdom that is assured, that is true, right? We, we feel like maybe we've suffered so long. We've endured so much that evil has just pressed on every side, that temptation and sin out there and, and the weight of evil in here, we've maybe grown pessimistic or cynical that there'll be any change in my life, any change in my family in my marriage, in my church, in my neighborhood, in this city, in the world? Could, could real change actually happen? And I think what happens when we find ourselves uh, in those places, you ever been like sick for like five days or in the hospital for like a week and you feel like, I think I will just live here. I'm gonna have my stuff. I'm just gonna move in. This is now my new living room. You feel like you're never gonna get out of that place. You're never gonna feel right again. And, and when you're in those darkness, sort of that darkness of the valley of the shadow of death sort of moments, and all you can see is the shadows. All you can see is the weeds. All you can see is the sabotage. And then here comes Jesus and he says, look, when you're in those moments, don't focus on the sabotage, focus on the seeds. Focus on the work that God is doing in the midst of all of this. See, because church, God has already started setting the world right. We're not done yet. He's not done yet. He's in process. He's planted the seeds and there's coming a harvest. See, he planted the seeds at the cross where he conquered uh, Satan and sin. He planted the seeds at the, as the resurrection when he rose from the dead and conquered death itself. He planted the seeds at the ascension where he ascended to the right hand of the throne of God and sent his Holy Spirit to be with us. He's planted the seeds in the early church where the church started preaching the gospel and continued to go forward. He planted the seeds in each and every one of your hearts and in your lives so that you might be transformed and made into the image of his son. Because there is, according to 1 Peter, a coming unfading crown of glory. There's a moment, Revelation 21, where he will literally wipe away every tear from your eye. In church, that's just not a cosmic dealing with evil. That is a personal dealing with evil, the weight that it has put on you. Like a father would take the, the, the face of a child to wipe away those tears. That's what, that's what he says. He will wipe away the tears from our eyes. There will be no more death or crying or pain. And in its place, Psalm 16 tells us that the fullness of joy will be in his presence and we will enter into the joy of our master. And one day the transformation will be complete and we will be made conformed into the image of his son. And when that happens, church, we will shine, we'll shine forth like the sun in the kingdom of our father. That he is redeeming every inch of creation. He's restoring it, he's redeeming it. 
He's, he's bringing about uh, the, the brilliant work so he might put it under his power of his perfect will. And so church, I just encourage you to imagine that for a moment. Maybe it's, it's so far out of your perspective that he will make us shine like the sun, that he's working all of history towards that point, that he's working all the history of your life towards that point, that you, at some point in your history, will shine like the sun because of the righteousness of Christ that is in you. That's not just a verse for someone else, it's a verse for you. For those of you who who aren't weeds, but who are wheat, who are planted in the word of God, who are growing in in, in the, the, the growth of God, that he is bearing fruit in your life, that you will shine like the brilliance of the sun. I mean, what a truth. And the last question that we're asked the last question that the, the workers ask is, okay, what do we do? We've been asking that question maybe uh, recently. What do you want us to do? That's what they said. Verse 28, we read this. So the servant said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Uh, I think that's a great way of us going, man, what is it that we do? And I, I think the parable points us to at least two things. Number one, is that we wait confidently. Look at what the the servants did. I love their eagerness. Uh, The servants notice all the weeds and they say, we got this. We'll take care of it. We'll We'll go out there. Even though we were asleep when it happened, we'll go out there and be the ones to take this process. They they have the assumption that they have the knowledge and ability to actually take out all the weeds without actually harming the roots of the wheat which any farmer would know that if you're planting plants next to each other, the roots are gonna be intertangled. So they're, they're eager, but they're ill-informed and they're ill-equipped and they're a little bit self-involved to assume that they would have the ability to distinguish and discern what was good and right. And so the master says, no, no, I want you to wait. I want you to wait. I want you to have confidence that I know what I'm talking about, that you don't have the ability necessarily to distinguish between weeds and wheat. You don't have in your limited capacity the ability to see what God is doing in the life of those weeds. Because guess what? You and I were weeds at one point and God didn't pull us out. He left us there and he transformed us. He saved us. He caused us to bear fruit. We were weeds that led to death. And he's saying, no, I've transplanted you. I've made you new. And so you don't even know what I'm doing among the people here. You, You might look out and say, that one is bad, but God is at work in them and he's bringing them about. And so we patiently endure because we believe this, that God still saves sinners, the likes of you and I, the likes of others. And so he is patiently enduring. But we we get frustrated with his seeming slowness on our timetable. We think, man, the harvest needs to happen immediately. It needs to happen right now. There's too much going on and it needs to happen. But we have to be reminded that heaven's not gonna come through human effort. Right? That nothing short of the final judgment and the, the recreation of all things at the end of the, day, end of the age will ultimately purge evil from the face of the earth. But yet we still wait confidently. Even though the harvest is not immediate, it is imminent. It's not immediate, but it is inevitable. God will bring about the harvest. And so you and I, we, we wait. Because there's a moment between planting and sowing a seed and harvesting of fruit. And where we are sort of in history right now is somewhere between the seeds being planted and the harvest coming. 
And so God calls us to wait, but wait with confidence, knowing that the harvest will inevitably come. So we wait confidently, but we also wait proactively. So does that mean if we're waiting confidently, we just sort of let go and let God and, and, and don't do anything, don't t- take any action towards helping bring about that which is uh, called upon the church? Well, no, of course not. See, patience isn't passivity. It is activity, but it is doing so with confidence in who God is. And so we focus on the flourishing of God's people. I've been wrestling with Romans 12, 21 recently. It's a fantastic verse. Here's what it says. It says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Do not be overcome by evil. Some of us are in that place. We're feeling like, man, I'm feeling like I'm overwhelmed, perplexed, confused with all the evil around me and in me. It says, don't be overcome by it, but overcome evil with good. And Paul gives us the ways to do that. Romans 12, verse nine. He says, here's how we do that. We love one another with brotherly affection. We love one another with brotherly affection. That you're close to one another in, in the church, that you're close enough to people in some sort of community where you're actually known and can know others. You can actually serve and sacrifice and give your life away so that they might thrive and flourish. Love one another with brotherly affection. Verse 12 says, rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. You don't wanna be overcome by evil. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in the tribulation that you find yourselves in. Be constant in the prayers that you're offering. How do we overcome evil with good is that we, verse 14, we bless those who persecute. We bless and we do not curse. When, when evil is done to us, we, we can be overwhelmed by evil to saying, the evil that you've done to me, I want that to be done to you with reciprocity. If you've wounded me, I'm gonna wound you. And what happens is whether we're actually out there doing the wounding or sitting back and watching it happen and, and sort of applauding when our enemies are wounded, when our enemies are, are, are thrown down, even in that, it is letting evil overcome. But he says, no, no, bless those who persecute, bless and do not curse. In verse 15, he says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. If there are folks in your community, in your church, in your family, that God is blessing and rejoice with them. Say, praise God with them. If jealousy is rising up, that's where evil begins to take root. But weep with those who weep. Empathize to the best of your ability to love and to lead well. Rejoice and weep. And finally, verse 20, how do we overcome evil with good? If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Feed him. Serve them, be the people of of God, be the people of Christ who love and rejoice and pray and bless and feed. And we keep doing that. Say, how long do we have to do it? You keep doing that. You keep serving and waiting patiently and waiting proactively by loving and rejoicing and weeping and, and, and feeding and praying until God comes. And when he does, he will make you shine like the sun in the kingdom of the Father. And when we shine like sun, that's, that's how we were meant to be. Genesis 1, 26 talks about making us in the image of God. That image shines forth who God is. Each one of us are made uniquely in God's image. 
Each one of us looks differently and we can, because of that, sort of show forth a different facet of the glory of God. It's not that we're all sort of identical bundles of wheat, but no, we're different flowers in the garden. And when brought together, we show forth the manifold wisdom of God. And so Jesus comes and he tells us a, a simple story about a farmer who sows seeds and he does so to get up underneath to get up underneath the hardness of our hearts, to remind us to endure and to keep waiting confidently, to keep pushing proactively because there is coming a day when he will finally bring about a harvest. He will finally deal with evil and completely eradicate and he will reward the righteous. And when that happens, you and I will get to shine like the sun. And when we do that, we get to show all creation that God is who he said that he is, that he is good, that he is beautiful, that he is wise, that he is just, that he's all of those things. And he will not stop being those things ever. And he's not gonna stop working in this world and in your life and in our church until he brings about his goal, which is his glory and the shining of his people. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for simple stories like this that you teach and they seem to just capture us and grab hold of us and remind us to press in and to endure and to wait. And so Lord, would you keep doing that in us? I pray for those, my brothers and sisters who are feeling at the end of their rope they're feeling like they can't hold on another day. God, would you endure them? Would you allow another brother or sister to love with brotherly affection, to rejoice with them or weep with them? God, would you allow your church to remain and endure until the end? And Lord, would you cause us to shine, to shine forth your goodness, to shine forth your glory when the world feels dark? Lord, would you make us the light of the world, a city on a hill, so that many might see you, many might taste and see that you are good. So God, would you do that? Would you be honored and you glorified in your church? And until you come, God, give us the endurance to keep running the race you've marked out for us. We ask that in Christ's name.